0: And it's so much easier to sit and be stagnant and be comforted in our excuses than it is to say, hey, let me ask the right type of questions around the people that are in front of me at least to move me one step closer. This is Melinda Emerson, the Small Biz Lady, host of the Small Biz Chat Podcast. I want to serve you. This pandemic has been so hard on America's small businesses and on just America in general. If you're ready to start your dream business, boy, do I have a great offer for you. I am giving away 1,000 copies of my best-selling book, Become Your Own Boss in 12 Months. Over 100,000 people have this book. It has been printed in multiple languages around the world, and I wanted to find a way to serve America's small businesses in this pandemic. And so I am giving away a thousand copies of my book. All you have to do to get your copy is head over to beginmybiz.com slash free offer to you know sign up for your copy. All you have to do is pay shipping and we will mail one out to you. I am so excited about this. I want to serve you. Grab your copy today. Ending small business failure. I'm Melinda Emerson, Small Biz Lady, America's number one small business expert, and I would like to welcome you to the Small Biz Chat podcast. Now, the goal of the Small Biz Chat podcast is to give our small business audience an opportunity to hear sage advice from various different perspectives, all with the goal to take your business to the next level. I'm with my guest. Felicia Hatcher. Felicia is an innovation powerhouse. She is a personal transformation speaker, entrepreneur, author, and mother whose work shapes the way individuals show up are valued and financially benefit from playing full out in the innovation economy. Companies like Google, Spotify, DoorDash, Target, Samsung, and more hire Felicia to help them empower their teams to shape their inclusive innovation strategies. Felicia's been featured on the Today Show, MSNBC, Cushing Channel, Wall Street Journal, and she was a White House Champion for Change honoree. Felicia, welcome to the Small Biz Chat podcast. Thank you for having me, Melinda. How are you? Oh, I am good. I'm good. I'm so happy. I mean, we've been trying to get you on this podcast for forever, so I'm so excited that you're finally here. So tell me, tell me about the circuitous route you took to become an entrepreneur. I wish there was a straight line. There definitely was not one. I started my first business in college at 19 years old after winning $130,000 in scholarships and grants as a C student. My GPA never touched a 3.0, maybe on the way down, but definitely not on the way up. And after winning that kind of money, your parents do what parents do and tell all their church friends and every organization and sorority fraternity that they're a part of that they need to bring you in to give advice. And so I started doing that and to the detriment of my grades again. And my mom again was just like, you need to turn this into a business. And I was just like, what are you you talking about? And she's like, no, you need to be charging for this. And I just, I could not fathom what that meant at the time but I quickly had to learn because it was either my grades were suffering all they would want all this money to go to college or I was going to figure this out as a business. And so my first business was an educational consulting business that got stolen by an employee that I hired and I was devastated. And I say that because I had wrote off entrepreneurship and I never wanted to be an entrepreneur again, if that's what it meant, that I would lose my contract to someone that I really trusted. And so my second like, real-time entree back into entrepreneurship was after working in corporate America, losing my job in two thousand eight during the economic downturn, and I literally fell into the food business in the form of falling down, chasing after an ice cream truck in heels, and that was my Oprah aha moment to launch a gourmet popsicle manufacturing company right at the right before the gourmet food truck movement started. And so, I spent seven years building that business, building a small ice pop empire with my husband, building it also at a time which was probably the worst time to start a business, which was in 2008. I just did not know any better. Plus, (laughs) if I could have found a job in my field, I would have never started, probably not even been on this podcast because it led me down the most interesting, the most wildest, the most successful and craziest journey of my entire life. That if you told me at 18 years old that this was what my life was going to turn into, I would tell you you were absolutely crazy. I would laugh in your face and I would absolutely walk away. And so, major companies became our clients. We figured out a really unique niche in the gourmet popsicle manufacturing space, built out a manufacturing facility, took on VC funding. It was probably the hardest year of my life doing that as well. And then eventually sold the company. But in the interim of that, Whole Foods and PayPal and Airbnb and Forever 21 and Cadillac were all our clients and we figured out this really unique niche to really turn popsicles into promotional items because there was so much brandable real estate in our products so from actually putting their rum into our products to building you know creating pops that match the color of Google's logo to being able to put a veno lotions like logo on the sticker of the wrapper to tinder asking us to create aphrodisiac pops like had a lot of fun <laughs> in the business and also really interesting requests that I guess a lot of food businesses get i don't know but that was the business that I ran for for 7 years and then the work that I do right now is really about supporting entrepreneurs specifically Black entrepreneurs and startup founders in the tech and innovation economy, realizing that the largest transfer of wealth in the Black community happened in 2008. And that's when our parents, our grandparents and our great-grandparents lost their homes. And they, that's how they were looking to tra- hold on and transfer wealth to us. And that was the largest transfer of Black wealth in my generation. And so I don't know anything else that can replace that fast enough than the tech industry. And so whether you work in tech and you're able to connect to a high wage job or an entry point into that and at one point be able to invest in startups or you are building a startup or building a tech enabled company yourself, that is the fastest track that I've seen. And tech touches everything. And I think in a way that people did not realize that prior to 2020, they realized that because we got a little wide awakening from our healthcare to the way that we all had to pivot in very smart ways to do business. At the end of the day, the work that I do is around ridding Black communities from being innovation deserts so that we are financial beneficiaries and, 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 and active participants of the innovation economy. So let's talk about that. So so what do you think are the keys to startup success for the population that you serve? Like we know that there are keys to success that are different from other people that don't have all kinds of barriers thrown up in front of them. But what do you think are the keys to success to, you know, for the black entrepreneurs that you're trying to serve in the tech space? Yeah, you know, three quick ones, uh, capital. It is the thing that people like to dance around. They don't like to get directly to it, but no one can build a business without touching some sort of form of capital. And I would say not just capital, but the respectable amount of capital for black businesses. And so we know businesses, black businesses are usually underfunded and over mentored, but even when they get the funding, it still does not equate to exactly what they need to build a business at scale. And so when you're talking about startups, you're looking for a business that can rapidly accelerate a repeatable model in in two years or less. Small businesses are a little bit different. You're talking about a slower growth trajectory over time. And so if a business is supposed to to play well within the innovation economy as a startup, we have to make sure that they have all the tools that they can succeed in order to rapidly increase what they're doing in, in two years. So there's that. I would also say hacking trust. Because too often people do not trust Black entrepreneurs with money, or they do not trust them with the right access to the power circles that can quickly make the decisions of yes or no about that business. And then I would say the third thing is there's a lot that government can do in the form of, and and corporations can do in the form of procurement opportunities. And so in in a time where, you know, where if we take VC and Angel out of this, Vendorization processes can be much more equitable in order to create opportunities for for startup founders, you look at the government's SBIR grant and making sure that more black entrepreneurs know that that exists and that's, you know, at least $75,000 just to iterate and to create an idea and then be able to iterate on that that can be game-changing for, for a small business. Local governments can shift their benefit agreements and what they're doing so that it really provides opportunities for tech entrepreneurs. I'm in Miami, we're literally in the middle of a tech wave because our mayor has put a billboard in Silicon Valley saying, come to Miami. And so <laughs> a lot of people are coming here, but we there's a lot of work that can be done. And so I would say those three areas, Melinda, are, are most important. And then I would say advisory boards, being able to surround Black entrepreneurs with skilled mentorship, not just a mentor for mentor's sake, but someone who has been there and done that before and really can advise them on the best next step to make would be that fourth component in what I think can start turning the ship around of, of Black entrepreneurship. So I want to switch gears on you a little bit because you wrote a book called Start a Business on a Ramen Noodle Budget. And so I'm assuming you didn't mean tech startups. I thought you meant like the rest of us, like the mom and pop businesses out here. I'm assuming that's who that advice was for. But but I want you to explain this whole thing, because when I saw the title, I have to tell you, I hollered out loud because I was like, (laughs) oh, I mean, when I think about ramen noodle, I think about all of those broke days in college, like looking for change in my couch, like so (laughs) that we could go buy something to eat. And ramen was definitely on the menu more than a few times. So tell me about how you came to write this book. It literally came from, from that exact exact same thought process, right? And so it started off as a joke. You know, thinking about back in the day in college, getting a little 30, I think, I don't know if ramen's like 59 cents now, but it was like 20 or 39 cents back in the day. You know, if you had a little little to work with, you could cut up some chicken, put some extra spices, throw some broccoli <laughs> in it. Now you have a you have technically a gourmet meal, right? Like we got ramen bars all over the United States that now do the same thing. And if you're feeling really fancy, you light a candle. So you've literally gone from like this 29-cent meal to arguably something that could be considered gourmet by just getting creative with limited resources. And so my whole premise of the book is if you can channel that same type of creativity that we did when we got creative with ramen noodles, a pack of ramen noodles, and added a little things, you can do the same thing with a business. And like, as far as mindset is concerned about what's possible. And so when people don't have money to start a business, that does not mean that you don't have other things. That doesn't mean that you don't have a network that you can tap into. That doesn't mean that you can't comb through LinkedIn and pull pull together an expert and pretty expensive advisory board that you can sell on the vision that can now advise you and guide your business and consult your business, oftentimes for free. And that doesn't mean that you can't create an MVP. And so if you want to start a brick and mortar school on a ramen noodle budget, I'm going to tell you, this this is not the book for you. But if you say, hey, I have a curriculum. I have an idea worth sharing. I have a process that works. Well, hey, you can go on lynda.com. You can go on Udebi. You can go on Teachable. You can go on Kajabi. You can go on all these platforms that cost little to nothing in order for you to still educate people and monetize that. And then, hey, from there, you may see as you grow that... I may not need to ever launch a brick and mortar location. I can stay in the digital space. And we've seen people like a Daniel, what Daniel Leslie and Dominique Broadway, and all these people have used those same type of platforms to build eight-figure businesses. Or you get to a point where you're generating enough revenue, you've proven your concept, and now you can invest in maybe renting a space, or and we have a lot of underutilized space because of the pandemic. And so that's what I want people to be thinking about when you think about starting a business on a new budget is breaking it down into very small steps in which you can start today, but getting very creative in doing an asset assessment of what are the other resources that you have that you can leverage, whether that's social media, whether that there's so many different platforms whether it's leveraging Fiverr. Like I think Fiverr is a goldmine for people launching businesses. I coach students oftentimes that come through our programs. And it was just like, you can literally go on Fiverr, find the top 10 like services that are provided, find the top 10 high rated people within those services and put your business on top of that. And so if you know you now have someone that can deliver the goods, now all you got to do is work on business development and bring in the clients and outsource it to somebody on Fiverr. Like you can build a six. Your business literally doing that by someone. You can do this thing for five. You charge one hundred and fifty. It's you have one hundred and forty-five dollars in revenue to work with. You've serviced a client. You have someone that you've outsourced the process to. That is thinking on a ramen noodle budget. Love it, love it. So digital marketing has really kind of leveled the playing field for a lot of entrepreneurs of color. Have you seen that benefit, or do you still see people really, really struggling, sort of like with their digital pivot? I think last year, more than anything, we've seen a lot of people have to adopt that in ways that they didn't even think that they needed to. Right. And it was really interesting from someone who has been rallying in the past for the past seven years for people to use tech and understand tech and value it and understand how it's a utility for you to really grow your business and expand your presence. And so I kind of laughed in this way of like, I've told y'all and now you're forced (laughs) to be able to to use it. And so one of the things that we saw last year is with our organization, we launched the COVID-19 Side Hustle Academy. Even for us as an organization, we were planning to do that in person for about 25 people. When COVID hit, we launched the program online using Teachable, and we had over 600 people across the nation be able to go through that training. And a lot of it was digital marketing. And so for us, it was just like, well, everyone was throwing around all the acronyms, PPP and PPE We're like, put your own, like create your own paycheck protection program, (laughs) learn how to put your own oxygen mask on by learning how to utilize digital to grow your business. And I think just like Ryan said earlier, it's easier than ever. Ever before to start a business. More of this is mindset than it is not having the resources, but realizing that you have the tools available and then ask questions, right? One of the best business advice that I got was the quality of your questions determine the quality of your life. And so Mm. so many of us are just not asking the right type of questions, and it's so much easier to sit and be stagnant and be comforted in our excuses than it is to say, hey, let me ask the right type of questions around the people that are in front of me, at least to move me one step closer. Well, who can you introduce me to that can do this? That should provide so much insight into the next step. And then you ask that same person the next thing and the next thing. And before you know it, you're at the exact person that can provide the exact answer that you need. But so many of us are too afraid to be vulnerable to say, I don't know. And I'm one of the first person to tell people, I don't know, but I can find the answer. Or can you help me find the answer? But I, I'm i not, I don't know everything, but I do know what my zone of genius is. And more than anything, I think more of us need to be aligning our zone of genius with digital marketing tools to catapult what we're trying to do. I love that. I love so many things about what you said. Now, one of the other things that I read is that you believe that execution is personal. And I want you to kind of break that down because when I first read that, I was like, "Okay, what is she talking about? But I but I, I, I want you to explain it. I do. I did read your explanation, but I want you to explain what it means. Yeah, you know, when the first, literally the first chapter of my book is the top of it says, ideas are worthless and execution is absolutely everything. And I believe that it has been the gut check of me in moments where I'm just like, well, have I done the work? No, I haven't. So why am I expecting results from work that I have not done? And so when I say execution is personal, it's really about like having levels to our why more than anything else, right? And not just the levels to our why. Or setting the goal. But like, well, how do we execute on those goals? And what is my personal commitment to achieving the, the goals that, that I that I want? I think so often we have been, whether it's trained, like, I don't know what it is. I don't know where it comes from exactly, Melinda, but it's very easy for us to pass the buck as to why the things that we want out of life have not happened for us. And so when I say execution is personal, it's literally just that, like, what is your personal commitment to execution? What are the steps that you plan on taking? Have you gotten very granular in exactly what you want and what you want it to look like? I think a lot of us have either set goals or I'm a big person on on Gay Hendricks book, The Big Leap and talking about your zone of genius. And oftentimes we just we expect results from work that we have not done. But more importantly, like we set goals that kind of sort of look like what we kind of sort of want it to be. But it's never quite it because we haven't defined what that is. And why I bring up zone of genius is like once you realize what your secret sauce is, your gifts are, your goals, you have to give it a destination. Like where do you want it to take you? What doors do you want it to open for you? What new conversations do you want to have? What new food do you want to have as a result of you working in your zone of genius? Like we have to get that granular with our, with our goals, because if not, it's not personal, it's external. We're doing these things for everyone else, but we're not doing it for ourselves. And as long as we keep passing the buck to everyone else, we don't not, we do not move forward and we don't have forward momentum. And so we have to give our goals our gifts, our genius, a destination, tell it where to go and then get to doing the work in order to be able to make that happen. All right. We have just a few minutes left, but I do want to ask you, tell me about the Center for Black Innovation. I really kind of want to understand your master plan to rid the world of innovation deserts. Yeah, the goal for that, um, we rebranded our organization after seven years to the Center for Black Innovation to really f- better communicate what we've done, to better build ecosystems that become a magnetic force for all the resources that businesses particularly black businesses and communities need to thrive within the innovation economy. And so for us, it started off as a space, but really we want all black communities to be known as innovation centers for black innovation. And so to be in order to do so, we have to rid those communities from being innovation deserts. And so it needs to happen from a number of standpoints, whether it's more asset based research, right? Over the past year, everyone has talked about the 40% of Black businesses that have closed and and will not reopen. Why aren't we talking about the 60% of Black businesses that did remain open? How did they do it? What lessons can we learn? Because success leaves clues. How do we better study those businesses so that we align the right type of resources? So if another global pandemic happens, we know how to better serve those 40 percent of businesses that open. And so part of the Center for Black Innovation is doing more asset based research around Black communities, Black entrepreneurship, startup, pockets of Black wealth that creates around the, like, not all Black people are broke. And we have enough that can invest in businesses, but we don't value the dollar enough to aggregate all of those dollars to start investing in our businesses the right way. And so one part is that. The other part is building better accelerators for our businesses to be able to succeed and rapidly grow in a short period of time. We have a venture studio that's a part of that as well, that actually builds out the technology solutions for those startups, too. And then more so, it's a space as well that needs to exist in all of our communities. And so working with government officials across the United States to look at underutilized space to be able to turn into better co-working and and urban innovation centers is also a big part of the work that, that we do. And then access to capital. And so we have an angel investor accreditation program specifically to help people that, you know, we have pockets of wealth in the healthcare industry, in the legal industry as well, where Black people have jobs that pay. Two to $300,000, well, they can become accredited angel investors. But well, what is the vehicle in in order to allow them to do so? And then how do we build community so that they can start investing and de risk investments so that they can start making better investments into Black entrepreneurship and startup founders? And so all of those programs exist within the Center for Black Innovation with a strong and mighty team. But our real goal is to really be able to create wealth, but like real wealth pathways using technology to be able to fuel that and then also fund that. I love it. I love it. All right. Last question. What is the best business advice you've ever gotten? Ooh, best business advice is probably closed mouths don't get fed. <laughs> that was probably There's a lot that has been thrown at me. It's I like, think your mama told you that, though. I don't know <laughs> if that's business advice. That sounds like mama them advice. So. <laughs> But anyway, got it, got it. All right, Felicia, what's your favorite podcast? Who it's a tie right now between How I Built This, which I love, but Dave Chappelle's The Midnight Miracle is my jam right now. And so <laughs> it has to be a tie. I can't choose between the two. It's like Sophie's Choice, right? Okay, so Felicia, what's your favorite business app? Uh, Slack right now. Slack, okay, that's another good one. What is your favorite old school marketing tip? old school marketing tip? Uh, Word of mouth. <laughs> word of mouth referrals. That's that. That's very good. Word of mouth referrals. I'll take that. All right, Felicia, what's your favorite oh, business book? I have many, but I'm going to say The Alchemist, which is not really a business book, but my boss gave it to me and it made me quit my job and start my business. And so <laughs> that is my favorite business book. She should have never gave that book to me as a gift on my first day. But when I read it, I quit. I quit the job. He said, I'm out. Thank you for giving me the roadmap to leave here. Well, listen, thank you all for joining me for this episode of the Small Biz Chat Podcast. If you want more information about how to start and grow a business, head over to Small Biz Lady University. I'm sure I got a course over there that can hook you up and get you where you want to go. Thank you all so much. The mission of Small Biz Chat is to end small business failure. I'm Melinda Emerson, the Small Biz Lady. I want to leave you with this. You never lose in business. Either you win or you learn. God bless everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Small Biz Chat podcast with Melinda Emerson. For more resources and small business success strategies, Visit succeedasyourownboss.com. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next Wednesday.